From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons. Marie, Jessica, Lady Janice, Whitney, Rachel, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette. I now have three dear Emmas, Galen, Bree, David, and John. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and, well, we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast will be on Lizzie Borden. Now, listen. I'm fully aware that she is one of those that is done to death, but I haven't heard her story in quite some time, so I thought we could relive it together and see what new conspiracies or theories might have popped up. Come with me down the rabbit hole. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Her parents were Andrew Jackson Borden and Sarah Anthony Morse Borden. I was able to trace all the way back to when Lizzie's paternal ancestors immigrated to the United States from Kent, England in the 1600s, but I was also able to find her direct paternal lineage all the way back until 1370 in Kent. The ancestor from 1370 owned land in a couple of places and his descendants didn't move around much until Richard Borden, born in 1596 began his life in Kent, England, and then immigrated to Portsmouth, Rhode Island in his adult years with his wife. He was laid to rest there in 1671. Each Borden generation after remained in Portsmouth, Rhode Island until 1697 when they moved to Tiverton, Rhode Island. In 1722, Richard Borden moved to Sandwich, Massachusetts. Then his son moved to Fall River, Massachusetts, and the family remained there until after Lizzie. Her paternal grandfather was Abraham Bowen Borden, born in 1798 in Fall River. And Lizzie's grandfather's brother had an interesting wife. Let's take a little side quest. <laughs> 
Abraham's brother was Lodwick Borden. Lodwick had a first wife, and they had two children together. The first was a daughter who died the same year she was born. I wasn't able to find out how the baby died, whether she passed during childbirth or what, but she did unfortunately die the same year she was born. Lodwick and his first wife then, two years later, had another baby. This was a son who also died the same year he was born. So he and his wife had two infants who did not survive. Two years after the death of their infant son, his first wife died. There is no mention of what she died from, be it from childbirth, though no other infant was listed, or from an illness or what. What I do know is that she was only 27 years old. So our boy Lodwick, who was apparently a highly respected member of the community, then remarried five years later to a woman named Eliza Darling Borden. He was now 31 years old, and Eliza was 30. A year after they married, Eliza gave birth to a baby girl, Maria. A year and a half later or so, they had another baby girl they named Eliza after her mother. The next year, they had a son they named Holder three children born all very quickly after each other. Okay, so about six months after she had Holder, people later said that Eliza had appeared rather melancholy for a few days, and then she did the absolute unthinkable. During the later afternoon hours on a Wednesday, Eliza took her two younger children, six-month-old Holden and around two-year-old Eliza Jr., so to speak, down into the cellar and drowned them in the cistern. A cistern is a waterproof container that is built to catch and store water, not as deep as a well that is dug very deep to find fresh water in the ground for reference. The newspaper article from the Fall River News states that Eliza then, quote, stepped behind the chimney, cut her own throat with a razor, and died almost instantly, end quote. Lodwick and Eliza had a housekeeper who had only just stepped out to draw a pail of water, leaving Eliza alone with the children. It is speculated that she had suffered from postpartum depression, which is fairly common for new mothers. Back then, they speculated that she had been in a, quote, paroxysm of insanity, as we all know mental health wasn't a hugely studied topic back in 1848 when she committed this crime. Lodwick then went on to have two more wives before he passed in 1874 when he was 62 years old and had the one surviving daughter, the eldest of he and Eliza's children. When Lizzie's great uncle died, she was 14 years old. Eliza had murdered two of her three children 12 years before Lizzie was even born. Now, it's obvious that Eliza was not a blood relative to Lizzie, so it goes without saying that this really has nothing to do with Lizzie. But it is an interesting part of her family history, and to think that the murder of these children and the later Borden murders that Lizzie's story tells both being in the same town is at least noteworthy. But back to Lizzie. Andrew Borden, her father, was allegedly an eighth-generation high-society man, though his father had not been successful at keeping his money compared to the other Bordens. Andrew's father was described as a fish peddler. 
Andrew wanted no part of turning out like his father, feeling Abraham had squandered and humiliated the family, so he started working quite young as an apprentice carpenter. Through persistence and hard work, working 14-hour days as it was said, he worked his way up the ladder to eventually becoming a partner in a casket company and went on to oversee the building of fine furniture. Andrew married a woman named Sarah Anthony Morse. Sarah and Andrew had their first child, Emma, in 1851. Five years later, they had a second daughter, Alice, in 1856, but the child died before she reached her second birthday. Her cause of death was listed as dropsy on brain, but we now know this as hydrocephalus, which is a condition where fluid accumulates in the brain, typically in young children, which enlarges the head and can cause brain damage and even death. Then the couple had their third and final baby, Lizzie Andrew Borden, in 1860, four years after Alice's death. Emma was nine years old. So when Lizzie was around two years old, Sarah died. It is said that she died from, quote, uterine congestion and spinal disease. Now, this term was sort of a catch-all for a few different gynecological issues, such as endometriosis, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, blood loss from an ectopic pregnancy or miscarriage, and so on. And as far as the spinal disease, while that could have been meningitis, tuberculosis, but in this case, it could have been something like uterine cancer that metastasized to the spine, but there are many possibilities. So Andrew was now a widower at 41 years old. Emma was now 11 to 12 years old and basically took over the role of being Lizzie's mother, as we all know would have happened under those circumstances, and especially so back then. At some point, Andrew met a woman named Abby Durfee Gray, and they married in 1865. She was 37 years old, and Andrew was 43. Emma was into her teens, and Lizzie would have been around five years old. Lizzie later stated that she had no living memory of her mother. Now, let's stop and think about this situation. Andrew was a single father, and back then, it wasn't very common for a father to know exactly what to do in the daily upkeep of children. Andrew would have most certainly busied himself with his work again, both because he still had two children to raise and support, and also he couldn't stand the thought of turning out like his own father with nearly nothing. He married Abby, though I couldn't find out how they met. My educated guess is that they might have met in church as both were strict Christians who raised the girls as such faithfully. Regardless, Abby had never married prior to marrying Andrew and was considered an old maid for that time. 37 years old and never married? That would have been a bless your heart situation as we say in the South. According to FamousTrials.com, quote, Abby used the Durfee name to link her with one of the first families in the area. She desired respect and social status, but was often regarded as the daughter of a pushcart peddler, end quote. By the time she met Andrew, he was doing quite well for himself. 
All sources explain that he was very tight with his money, and what money he did spend was done so very wisely. So, Andrew proposing to and marrying Abby, considering his social and financial status, compared to hers was quite the surprise to the local community. Most sources agree that he most likely married her to have a woman to cook and clean and care for him, and she would have most certainly been at an advantage, raised her status, and would no longer have to carry the ridiculous but real shame of being an old maid. Was it a marriage of convenience? Most likely, but I do hope they shared a fondness for each other. Abby also married into two daughters, knowing she would finish raising them as their stepmother and, well, we all know how blended families can be. There are no documented cases of abuse or neglect throughout Lizzie's childhood and the remaining younger years of Emma. We could speculate how the girls' relationship was with Abby, but both continued to grow up to be happy and healthy young women. However, there were whispers of a less-than-harmonious relationship between the girls and Abby and perhaps a little bit more with Lizzie. That is to say, they were not close. The sisters greeted Abby as Mrs. Borden. Both sisters also apparently worried that Abby's family might be trying to get their hands on their father's money. Their future housekeeper would later testify that, in fact, Lizzie and Abby rarely even ate meals with their father and Abby. It really didn't seem that the girls held any affection toward their stepmother at all. Andrew was again quite successful with his work in manufacturing and real estate development to support his wife and two daughters, and he also employed servants to keep their home in order. As far as his personality goes, he was described as dour, meaning he was relentlessly severe, stern, or gloomy in manner or appearance. But Lizzie was very close with her father. Both Emma and Lizzie lived with their father and stepmother into adulthood. Emma was understandably protective of her younger sister, and together, the two sisters actually helped to manage the rental properties owned by their father. And again, the Bordens were very religious and attended the Central Congregationalist Church, an institution in which Lizzie was particularly involved. Now, Lizzie was an intelligent young lady, as was Emma, and Lizzie was well aware. I mean, she knew her position in life and held it well. She was a typical high society young debutante. She belonged to numerous clubs. She was an active member in her church. In all the organizations she participated in, Lizzie usually held a leadership role, often taking the position of treasurer because of her father's wealth, or secretary. And as much of a tightwad as Andrew was, he was very well known for how he presented himself and particularly how he dressed. No matter the season, he wore his black, double-breasted Prince Albert suit and string tie. Through all of that hard work, he was well on his way to becoming a millionaire. He ultimately became the director of several textile mills and eventually owned a sizable amount of commercial property. On top of that, he was also president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company.
And even with his family comfortable and him being pretty wealthy, there were things he refused to spend money on, such as indoor plumbing. Even though nearly all of the people in the community with a bit less wealth than him had installed indoor plumbing, Andrew didn't. And the house that they lived in was not anything like what Andrew could have easily afforded. His net worth at the time the girls were quite grown was, say in today's money, upwards of $9.6 million. People in his tax bracket, if you will, lived in large houses in the wealthy district of town. But the Borden house, while still comfortable and nice, would have been considered small and very modest and nearer the industrial part of town. And really, if you've ever been as dirt poor as I have, you should understand why Andrew didn't want to blow extra money. He had worked very hard for the financial empire he had, and he was scared to lose it. It makes sense, at least to me. Andrew and I are alike in that aspect. I am not a fan of spending money at all. So Lizzie kept herself busy. As I said, she and Emma helped run various businesses Andrew had and were involved in their church. Lizzie was actually quite popular and belonged to clubs, and she was involved in contemporary social movements for the advancement of women, such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She joined the Christian Endeavor Society and was a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. She was also a Sunday school teacher to recent immigrants to the U.S. I mean... It sounds like she was at least a charitable, intelligent, forward-thinking young woman. Now, one would suspect that an intelligent, charity-minded, and good Christian young lady from wealth would have had suitors lined up at the door to court her back in those days, but that was not the case. She actually never married, and there is plenty of speculation as to why. Some sources described her as not being of great beauty, but I disagree. My personal opinion was that she was pretty in her own way and her eyes were gorgeous, but that's just me. An article in the Boston Daily Globe from 1892 wrote, quote, While not handsome, Miss Lizzie is decidedly attractive in appearance. She would impress one as belonging to a well-bred and well-reared family. End quote. And Emma never seemed to have any suitors either. The same article went on to say about Emma, quote, Appearance is not so attractive. She is similar in stature, of slight figure, and her features are less regular. Miss Emma looks precisely what she is by reputation, quiet and even timid in manner, wholly inoffensive, with manifest good nature, but no end of difference. She materially differs from Lizzie, who is self-possessed, deliberate, and confident in all her actions. End quote. Some people say Lizzie held a lot of resentment toward her father because she wanted to live the lifestyle she knew they could more than afford, and Andrew would have no part of it. Still others say she was kind of in an ever-revolving situation where no suitor would be acceptable. For the men who were financially equal to her, they considered her unacceptable. And for those who would have found her quite acceptable, her father would run them off feeling they were only after his money. And still yet is the possibility that perhaps she just wasn't into men. 
Maybe she was asexual or was attracted only to women. It was observed that, quite frankly, neither Lizzie or Emma sought out the attention or company of young men. Regardless of why, Lizzie never married and neither did Emma. So the next character is Bridget Sullivan, who immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland in 1883 in her late teens. For three years prior to working for the Bordens, it is likely that she was someone else's housekeeper. So Bridget was employed by Andrew in 1889, and by this point, Lizzie was about 29 years old at this time and most assuredly considered a spinster, and Emma would have been about 38 years old and also never married. Bridget lived in the residence, her room being on the uppermost floor in the attic. Andrew and Abby's bedroom, Lizzie's bedroom, and Emma's bedroom were all upstairs on the second floor. Emma's room was situated where she would have to walk through Lizzie's room to get to the front staircase to go downstairs to the front entry area. Andrew and Abby had their own stairway in the back of the house that exited downstairs just outside of the kitchen. So Bridget was a good fit for the family and the sisters affectionately nicknamed her Maggie, but I'll continue to call her Bridget. For a couple of years, things fell into a comfortable routine. The only other person Andrew had employed for the house was a man named Alfred. He was a, quote, domestic servant who worked on a farm, and Andrew would pay him to come to the house and do work, but this was not an everyday thing at all. And if Andrew trusted him and paid him, you could bet Albert had been well-vetted and had been deemed an honest man. Bridget would later indicate that she knew the sisters and Abby's relationship was often cool, if you will. There didn't seem to be any love lost between them, for sure, but it did seem everyone at least got along. That is, until 1892. Tensions were beginning to build within the Borden household. In May of that year, Lizzie was keeping pigeons in the barn of their property, she had taken the time to build them a roost. Well, Andrew was apparently convinced that keeping the pigeons was attracting the attention of children who were looking to hunt them. As the story goes, Andrew grabbed a hatchet, which would have been a very common household item for the times, went out to the barn and killed all of Lizzie's pigeons. She was upset, as you can imagine. Also, Andrew had been gifting various real estate to some of Abby's extended family. He even gifted a house to Abby's sister, and this angered Lizzie and Emma greatly. It appears that they, well, most likely Lizzie, confronted their father about this and demanded that they be given a rental property that just so happened to be the house Andrew had shared with their birth mother before she died. So he sold it to them for one dollar. Then, just a few weeks later, they turned around and sold it back to their father for the equivalent of $151,000 in today's market. Then, during the hot weather of late July, there must have been quite the row within the house because both Lizzie and Emma left and took an extended vacation in New Bedford, Massachusetts to see friends. Then Emma went further to visit a friend in Fairhaven and stay for a while, a woman named Helen who lived with her mother. 
But Lizzie stayed in New Bedford and stayed with a Mrs. Poole. She went on a quick shopping trip alone, not far from the house she was staying at. It was said that she bought some cheap dress fabric and a pattern that she intended on taking back to her seamstress in Fall River. She was gone for a reported four days before returning home. At the turn of the new month, August, Abby and Andrew, as well as Bridget, had been very sick with symptoms like a stomach virus. The household had brushed it off to some meat that they had left on the stove to use in meals over a few days time is what made them sick. And my God, that's likely the cause. But Abby had vocalized her fear that someone had tried to poison them because Andrew had a number of people that didn't particularly like him. Now there is some speculation that perhaps Lizzie had tried to poison her father and stepmother using something already in the home and that it had obviously not worked. On August 3rd, Lizzie and Emma's birth mother's brother, John Morse, came over to the Borden house for a visit with the intention of staying a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew, in particular property transfers, which would have again angered the girls, at least Lizzie. But it was described that John was really Andrew's only true friend, and they enjoyed each other's company. Now, Emma had still not returned home yet from her visiting. During later court testimony, there was a nearby pharmacy just down the road from Lizzie's house. The same day her uncle would come to visit, druggist Eli Bentz later testified that Lizzie had come into his store asking to purchase some prussic acid ore hydrogen cyanide. She had stated that she wanted to purchase it to clean her sealskin cape, but Mr. Bentz had denied her, stating she didn't have a prescription for it. Not to mention it has no antiseptic properties. Lizzie then allegedly visited a local friend and spoke negatively about the mood of her house. She told her friend that she feared they were being poisoned. She lamented about all of the enemies her father had and that she had seen some, quote, suspicious characters around the Borden home recently. She told her friend, quote, I'm afraid, but that someone will do something, end quote. She had pushed back a little bit to the druggist, stating she had purchased it many times before from that shop, and she didn't understand why she couldn't now, but she hadn't argued too hard, and she had calmly left the shop. For reference, because she was denied that sale, the testimony didn't matter, and it was omitted from court. Curious. So that night, everyone tucked themselves into bed, and that included dear Uncle John. The rest of this part of the story I will tell you from the perspective of Bridget. The next morning was much like any other. Bridget got up around 6.15 a.m. not feeling well and having what sounded like a migraine, but went down to the cellar to gather wood and started the fire and went back to get some coal. All of this to begin the day's activities and get breakfast started. She saw Abby first, then watched Andrew come downstairs and mull about, then go outside to the pear tree and picked up a basket of pears and brought them into the house. Abby, Andrew, and Uncle John were up and having breakfast by 7 a.m. 
After breakfast, the men go into the sitting room to visit while Abby begins helping Bridget do the chores. And it's a good thing she was helping because Bridget was still pretty ill and had to run outside to be sick to her stomach. Around 8.45 a.m., Uncle John left the house and about 15 minutes later, Lizzie was downstairs having a very light breakfast. As her father passed through the house on his way out, Lizzie gave him some letters and asked him if he would mail them while he was out of the house, and he did, and he exited the home. Roughly 30 minutes later, this is around 9.30 a.m., Abby went upstairs to begin cleaning on the second floor where the bedrooms were. Bridget, still feeling a little ill, was outside and began cleaning the outside windows as Abby had asked her to do. As she began cleaning, Bridget later testified that Lizzie had poked her head out of the back door and asked her if she was going to wash the windows, to which Bridget said she was. She told Lizzie, quote, You needn't lock the door. I will be out around here, but you can lock it if you want to. I can get water in the barn, end quote. She then went to the barn to grab the handle for her brush. She started on the sitting room windows on the first floor and took a small break to chat with the neighbor girl at the fence. She then worked her way around the front of the house to wash the parlor windows, out the front and on the other side of the house. She moved over to the dining room windows, getting closer to the back of the house, and in between rooms, she went to the barn to refresh her cleaning water. All of this time of being outside, she stated she saw no one approach the house, nor did she see anyone in the downstairs part of the house through the windows, including Lizzie. She went back into the house to begin washing the inside of the first floor windows and started in the sitting room. Again, she saw no one downstairs. While she continued to clean windows, she heard someone trying to get through the front door but was unable. Bridget opened the door as well as the spring lock, which she also unlocked, and she opened the door to find Andrew on the porch. This was at 11 a.m. Bridget said she heard Lizzie laugh and she believed it came from upstairs. She went back to washing windows and Andrew made his way to the dining room. Lizzie came downstairs and spoke with her father, asking if she had received any mail and told him that Abby had left a note and had gone out. Andrew moved about the house, finally laying down in the sitting room. Bridget went upstairs to the attic to her room to rest for a bit, as again, she wasn't feeling well at all. Not too long after she had laid down, Bridget heard Lizzie yelling for her, stating someone had murdered her father. So leaving Bridget's perspective, this is what we know happened. When Abby had gone upstairs to tidy up bedrooms, she had been in that very process in the guest room when the murderer approached her. Abby had been facing her attacker. She was then struck on the side of her head with a hatchet, cutting her just above her ear. This caused her to turn around and fall face down on the floor between a dresser and the bed. The murderer then hit her several more times, 17 of those hitting her directly in the back of her head, thus killing her. Abby's murder took place between 9.30 and 10.30 a.m. 
This would have been just barely after Lizzie had stuck her head out of the door to ask Bridget if she was going to be busy washing windows. Though Bridget had been outside for a time, it doesn't appear she had been up above the first floor windows and she had been moving around the perimeter of the house doing the windows. She came in to continue with the windows when Andrew came home and remember, she distinctly heard Lizzie upstairs laughing briefly, placing Lizzie upstairs along with Abby's remains as Bridget had not seen anyone downstairs. Lizzie told Bridget that she was going to a department store sale and would she like to come along, but Bridget was still feeling unwell, so she had gone upstairs to rest, and then a few minutes later, around 11.10 a.m., is when Lizzie yelled for Bridget to come down, quote, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him, end quote. His body was half laying on the couch, his feet on the floor, him still in his shoes, and his head leaned over on the side. It appeared he had been struck 10 to 11 times with most likely the same hatchet that had dispatched his wife upstairs. It appeared he had been attacked while he was sleeping and his wounds were still actively bleeding. A family doctor who lived across the street was summoned and quickly came. Once Abby was discovered upstairs, that doctor pronounced both of them dead. The police descended upon the crime scene shortly after. Lizzie was questioned, and her answers seemed to vary each time she was asked. They found two hatchets and a hatchet head with the handle freshly broken off in the basement. Due to the mysterious stomach bug that had plagued Abby and Andrew specifically, the milk in the house as well as Andrew and Abby's stomachs were tested for poison, but the tests were negative. Now, there is just a ridiculous amount of information out there that will give you every single play-by-play -play of the investigation, and you can hear all of the different stories Lizzie gave as to her whereabouts and so on, but the point is that she was ultimately found not guilty at her trial, and that was that. There was insufficient evidence to find her guilty, plain and simple. Now, we all suspect she did it, right? Or most of us at least. I, for one, think she did, but I also entertain the reasons behind why people think she didn't. So let's look at some possible theories. Writer Victoria Lincoln, in 1967, proposed that Lizzie could have possibly murdered her parents while in a fugue state. And again, this isn't the first time we've heard of this. If you've watched Breaking Bad, you know exactly what a fugue state is. But really, it's just a mental and behavioral disorder where a person dissociates and has no clue what happened. This is exceedingly rare and highly unlikely, since Lizzie was perfectly coherent in the minutes before, in between, and after the murders. Fugue states don't really work like that. Some say that Andrew had physically and sexually abused Lizzie, and that drove her to kill him, but... Then why murder Abby when Abby was already terrified that some unnamed enemy of Andrew's was out to kill him, hmm? Perfect alibi, and Abby would have believed it. Not to mention that Abby sustained far more injuries than Andrew had, which suggests much more intense anger at Abby. Another author, Ed McBain, stated that perhaps Lizzie had been having a love affair with Bridget and that they had been discovered, which led to the murders. 
Back then, of course, it would have been completely scandalous to come out as gay. And considering how religious her parents were, I sincerely doubt that they would have had any tolerance for such behavior. Bridget would have been ordered out of the house with no good reference and so on. Problem is, if the parents had discovered an affair between the girls, why was Bridget still employed in washing windows? Some say that Bridget herself committed the murders for being asked to wash windows on such a hot day, but this is easily disproven as the high temperature for that day was in the low 80s. It most certainly was not unbearably hot, and especially so for people who were accustomed to the heat and had never enjoyed the pleasure of blessed air conditioning. <sighs> Next. Still others believe that Lizzie had mental health issues of some sort, having told a friend just before the murders, quote, I feel depressed as if something was hanging over me that I cannot throw off, and it comes over me at times no matter where I am, end quote. And yet another theory is that she had had a male suitor who she wanted to marry, and Andrew had forbid it. So the suitor came and murdered her parents. But again, Lizzie went on to live her life and never had a man with her that anyone has ever heard of. So I wouldn't believe this one either. Some say Uncle John murdered them, but he was seen in town, which ruled him out nearly immediately. And still others say Emma came home from her out-of-town visit and either murdered the parents herself or helped Lizzie. But it was confirmed that she had still been out of town and couldn't have possibly had the time to commit or help commit the murders. Really, all signs point to Lizzie. So what happened to Lizzie after the murders? Well, after the trial and her acquittal, Lizzie and Emma took their substantial inheritance of what would be around $8.5 million today, moved to the affluent neighborhood of The Hill in Fall River into a large and very modern house. Lizzie began to refer to herself as Lizbeth in some attempt to put the past behind her. She affectionately named her house Maplecroft and hired plenty of staff, a few live-in maids, a housekeeper, and even a coachman. But the damage was done. The upper crust of Fall River society ostracized her. She was officially out of the club, per se. She was also later accused of shoplifting in Providence, Rhode Island in 1897. Then in 1905, the sisters got into an argument over a party that Lizzie had thrown for an actress, considering that friendship had also garnered an intense amount of gossip. And Emma moved out of the house and never spoke to or saw her sister again. What is also interesting and incredibly sad is that in 1927, at the age of 66, Lizzie had to have her gallbladder removed and was quite ill for some time after. She ultimately died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927. Nine days later, Emma herself died at the age of 75 from chronic nephritis or kidney disease in a nursing home. She spent the rest of her days trying to avoid any media circus about the murder of her parents and Lizzie. Lizzie herself left her fortune to various local charities, some to her closest friend, some to a cousin, and then other various friends and family. So tell me guys, do you think Lizzie murdered her father and stepmother? 
I would love to hear your thoughts and theories. Tell me guys, what do you think? Leave a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is in the notes. But most importantly, thanks so much guys for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thanks so much guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time and then uh, in the early 80s they came up with this differentiation called serial killing 